Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Delightful. Arthur, like, just looked up and stared at me. (laughs) Oh, Harker is so used to podcasting, he just sleeps through it now. He's tired of my takes. (laughs) Arthur likes when I'm in meetings. (laughs) <laughs> he, he's sad I'm like sitting up in my giant beanbag chair because he can't get up on here with me so like my giant I got one of those like 10 foot by 10 foot blankets uh, and it's like draped down on the floor dramatically and so he's cuddled up on that because he's no. sad and grumpy because he can't sit behind me Aww, that's adorable how's, how's Scout doing John? Uh, Scout is I, I, I don't know where Scout is um, Ooh, but ominous is, it's kind of a shadowy presence that I think watches over watches over the house. Um, you know, they're they're, they're like a, a a kind of a din or a or a spirit. They'll just appear when you least expect it. The cat zone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Ah, <sighs> well, it's good good to touch base here on Horror Vanguard with uh, what all of our cats are doing. Uh, I'm I'm one of your I'm one of your co-ghosts and and a cat companion. I am Ash Darrow. Joined as always by John, aka the Liquor Guy. How's it going, John, aka the Liquor Guy? Uh, I was gonna like start my opening aria uh, based on that question, but I couldn't get the libretto finished in time. I'm I'm fine. Mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, I, I I let myself down. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, if it makes you feel better, I was going to recite the entirety of Glenn Danzig's Black Aria, his attempt at writing <laughs> an opera. <laughs> But then, but then I realized that I might have a little dignity left after recording 250 episodes of a podcast, and I wanna, I wanna keep that in a little vial around my neck at all times. And honestly, after we discussed uh, Danzig's uh, Verotica, Verotica, do we really need to bring Glenn Danzig up now? <laughs> oh, mother. <laughs> but we're joined. We're joined today by by one of the. Uh, wonderful podcasters from Library Punk, good friend Jay. How's it going, Jay? Uh, it's um, it's going well, thank you. I've been uh, wandering the HV crypt, uh, trying to find where the best like <laughs> acoustics are, and like been putting up sound panels. And I've got my Maria Callas Tosca record that I just bought uh, blaring in there to the to test the sound. Uh, I'm so glad I mean, uh, you you did take the red string with you though, right? Because I think we got uh, a mino tar relatively early on when we bought the hv crypt and i I don't remember if we fed it recently oh honey i want to get lost in there (laughs) (laughs) it's been a while it's been a while Uh, so uh before before we before we start cooking here uh jay would you like to let our audience know uh just a little bit about you and where they can find you on the internet and support the wonderful things that you do Sure. Um, so my name is Jay Colbert. It is not Colbert. I'm really <laughs> sorry if it's disappointing to anyone. Um, and I am a music library director. Uh, it's a different job than the last time I was on here. Uh, things have changed <laughs> in my life since last <laughs> time. Um, and I am one of the uh, three hosts of Library Punk, a leftist library worker podcast, uh, which you can find uh, where all uh, podcasts are distributed. And we talk about things like I don't know, um, like digital humanities and like political political economy, 
we just recorded two hours ago <laughs> an episode about uh, web archiving and social media. Um, we've uh, talked about like information access for incarcerated people. Um, and then we've had, I don't know, some, some fun episodes with like people coming on to talk about movies. Like, I don't know, the horror Vanguard podcast to talk about a goofy <laughs> Nick Cage film, pay the ghost. Um, and I will never be the same after like yearning for ghost, uh, child tornadoes all the time. From that. <laughs> it's still I mean, the best every... thing that's ever happened is the ghost child tornado. <laughs> and I would say the single most and, uh, damning also critique. recently... Oh, go, go oh, on, sorry, go on, go on. <laughs> and then um, I recently started a little Patreon venture myself because, like, I don't know, we're all doing it, I guess, uh, <laughs> um, about opera, where I want to um, share my love of opera, help other people get interested in opera, especially people who think that, like, they don't have access to it because they aren't in, like, the upper class. I am not in the upper class by any means. Um, and so that is... Um, at a, you know patreon.com slash wild at heart which is my twitter handle it's wild at heart like the david lynch film um but uh wild is spelled like oscar wild um and you can find me on twitter oh, yeah. at the same at underscore wild at heart we will make sure that all relevant links are in the show notes please do check them all out Woo! but we are here uh, we are here for the very first time. We're making some horror vanguard history. We are uh, spending an entire episode dedicated to talking about opera. Um, I'm I'm super excited. I think this is going to be I think this is going to be a really great chat. But like opera, I think for a lot of people who listen to this show might be a bit of a closed book, right? We're talking about the 2008 Royal Opera House production of Harrison Birtwistle's The Minotaur, and um, you know, normally I build this bit up in the show, right? It's a little funny <laughs> joke, but like, we're gonna, I, honestly, I feel like this is necessary, right? It's necessary now. Lots of people will never have seen the, seen the show, will never have seen the stage show, will never have seen the uh, DVD recording that you can get. So like, we probably do need to actually just do this. So Ash, would you mind just, just laying it out just as fact, as factually and as plainly as possible? <laughs> what the Minotaur is all about. The serious listener is concerned with the techniques of composition. The existence of a sea implies the space of a horizon. Any vision, any way of considering, and all approaches to the oceanic are defined by humanity's coastal nature. This anthrocee cartography retracts into our internal spaces. The nature of any internal space implies its contours. We see something chartable, something discrete, when that very charting is what gives rise to the perceived boundaries. How can our internalized dichotomies withstand a torrent we can't feel? Herman Melville cast a net into this very sea, from his own labyrinthian work of torment. Consider the subtleness of the sea how its most dreaded creatures glide underwater, unapparent for the most part, and treacherously hidden beneath the loveliest tints of azure. Consider this, and then turn to this green, gentle, and mostly docile earth. Consider them both, the sea and the land. Do you not find a strange analogy to something in yourself? We lack even the luxury of sailing against a true sea. 
Our battles are far less elegant and simple as hand, a wheel, a sea. We are slammed against illusory rocks by a phantom tide. Even the wounds feel uncertain as they wind through years into hearts and bone. These artificial seas beget artificial horizons, this hypersea that does less than not exist. It performs a machine-like labor of non-existing. To navigate a hypersea that does the work of non-existing is to accept destinations that emerge as subfactual, anti-historic, and as acts of spiritual effacement. Internal labyrinths eternal with a singular red twine leading, with certainty, back to an entrance that, ha that only has definite location when reached. The internal labyrinth renders as a socio-psychic maze when contacted by linguistic twines. Paths never exist as such, only as thought forms implying the possibility of different spaces. Something other than what is, and something other than what is in the process of becoming what is. In dreams I seem to speak like any man. I say my name. I tell my story. Awaken to a new slumber as we discuss Harrison Burt Whistle's The Minotaur. Ooh, yes. Boom, Minotaur. You know, there's also a Moby Dick opera. <laughs> oh, oh, put oh, it on the list. Oh. That I saw in, we, when I lived in Salt Lake City. Uh, yeah. we, we really could have been talking about Billy Budd. Uh. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's my favorite opera. <laughs> well, <laughs> let us let us let us uh, begin the opening act then with some contextual stage setting as we enter into the formalism zone. The formalism zone. Um, and I think maybe if we are get, if we are going to talk about opera, let us begin at the very beginning. Let us let us op do some opera one hundred and one. And Jay, um, your new Patreon project, which is which is honestly fantastic and so insightful, and I think people really should check out. Maybe you, I know you've just written a piece about this. Maybe you'd like to kind of just very quickly explain, like, how do you get into opera if you know nothing about it? Why is opera something that people should kind of pay attention to? Uh, sure. So um, anytime I talk about like, oh, opera's great and here's why, opera basics, I'm not going to go into what's a libretto, what's an aria. Like, that's something you can find on Wikipedia. What really like most beginner guides how do you get into opera they don't talk about how you actually like i don't know listen to opera watch opera enjoy opera like it's just all about like factual stuff and pff, that's boring i don't care like i uh don't have any formal training in music i don't have a music degree i, I work in a music library um but and i do know something about music but this is not something i am like an academic about right i'm not a professional about this um but i think that's good <laughs> um because a lot of people aren't um i think opera is great um because it is a way for us to tap into emotion um and physical sensation that polite society tries to take away from us like you remember when you were a baby and you could just scream well, I mean, you don't remember when you're a baby, but like babies can just scream. <laughs> they can just cry. They can just laugh. They can just like the feelings, the intense emotions that they're feeling and the needs that they have. They can just express them. And as we age, as we get older, as we are in society, we're told not to do that anymore. 
But opera is when your emotions get to explode. When you just get to sing how you feel to the most poetic and intense and ridiculous uh, level that you possibly can. Um, so that's like one of the reasons I think opera is so great and why I resonate um, so much with it. Um, it's like, I feel like I can't breathe without it anymore. Um, I, I I don't know. That's why I like it so much. And also it's just like, it's fierce. Like, <laughs> like you see on stage and there's all these costumes and people are singing. It's, it's lovely and it's ridiculous. And it, I love it because of that. Um, and for people who like, you know, are wanting to get into opera, like, how do you start? Like, honestly, like YouTube is a great resource. There are a lot of like recordings of, um, like full operas on YouTube that you can watch, including the Minotaur. <laughs> you can watch that on YouTube right now. Um, a lot of the very classic operas, you know, Don Giovanni, Barbara of Seville, all these other ones are on YouTube. You can watch individual arias on YouTube and just like explore, see what you like. Um, you're not going to like everything, but like, you know, the first time you read a book, maybe you don't like that book or that genre. That doesn't mean that you just like I don't know, don't like that entire medium. So you might dislike the first opera that you watch. That's okay. Go find another one. Try to find one in English. Find a weird one like this. Maybe you'll like Baroque <laughs> opera. Like maybe you'll like Akhenaten. That was my first opera and there's like no words in it. <laughs> like, you know, stuff like that. Uh, explore just like you would genres of books or movies. So I think I think that's a really great kind of encouragement. And I love the kind of melodrama, the unabashed melodrama of opera. But like to complicate this a little bit, I think we have yes. to we, we have to go actually huge amounts of opera is deeply classist. It's massively mm -hmm. it's massively inaccessible. Like um it is not opera for, for everybody. It's difficult to go yes. and see. It's very it's very heavily class coded, even if it mm -hmm. is accessible. Um it is and it is uh, virulently in places, like virulently, violently misogynistic. Um, and I, 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 I don't know. I think what, what do, as someone who, you know, as you very beautifully put it, you know, who can't breathe without it. How, how do we kind of approach this cultural form from a leftist point of view that takes in all of those kind of like problematic points of friction and 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 areas of like uh almost where we bounce off the form you know like how do we deal with that um and one that's an excellent uh question and point uh for example the metropolitan opera um didn't um stage a, an opera composed by a black person until 2021 jesus yeah uh like yeah, <laughs> it, it was a problem. Um, most uh, like performances of Madama Butterfly have yellow face in them. Uh, the also soprano on in the Trebko still defends blackface to this day. Um, you know that it's an, a legitimate problem, and I think I would approach it um, the same way you two often discuss um, just the gothic and the horror in general. That it is not inherently leftist or liberatory, but it's also not inherently um, not that. 
it's this sort of neutral thing that can be used either way. And to view it as inherently one way or the, or the other um, sort of misses how it can be a tool or a weapon or any of these other things. So I think approaching it as like opera is not inherently um, of one ideology, but it can express and be expressed through other uh, ideologies and theories and, you know, cultural viewpoints and all of this, if that makes sense at all. No, I think that's, I think that's a great way. I think that's a great way of putting it. And I think there's a, there's a phrase that you use in one of the pieces that you've written for your Patreon that I really want you to kind of unpack, which is like, they took opera from you. Yes. They, they took it. They took opera away from you. Um, yes. Yeah, go go off, go off, go off. So um, in the history of theater, like often it was just like the public space, you know, if you know anything about like Shakespearean, you know, plays and whatnot, you know, you have the groundlings, right? You know, Mm -hmm. just the the public, the regular people, um, you know, who like throw rotten fruit on stage if they didn't like you know, the production, um, even up until like the um, 17th and 18th centuries, people shouted and spoke and commented in the theater while they were watching. Um, there's this social phenomenon that is studied called the parterre, um, where it's sort of like the public voice or the public sphere within a theater, you know, people discussing while they're watching, um, commenting, gossip, you know, sis, like the sort of social space. And as we sort of move more towards like explicitly like capitalist um, environments, um, environments where those in power and those with wealth start controlling more and more of the theater and how it gets produced and why, then the people who are not of that class start getting shut out more and more and more. And that's, Interesting because once you get into like the 19th century, you start moving into these like bel canto and I think it's called verismo, like what Puccini was doing, where it's opera is about the common people. You know, look at La Boheme, right? That is about like poor people who are burning their art just to survive. That's what Rent's based on. Um, You know, people (laughs) dying of tuberculosis. A lot of operas about sex workers, like all of these things. As we start having operas, not about you know, dramatic God figures, but about regular people, the regular people can't even access them Yeah, more and more. Um, and, you know, once we get into the 20th and 21st centuries, like, you know, if you live in New York City or near it, you can go to the Met for actually not that much money. Um, you won't get like a quote, good seat, but honestly, back up in the cheap seats in the family circles where the sound is the best, just get some opera classes and, you know, stare. It's not you know, you don't really need to be up close and personal at an opera to enjoy it. But, you know, if you don't live in a major metropolitan area, like it's not like community theater where people are going to like, like put on the music man for fun. Like opera tends to not be part of community theater. So if you don't live in a city or are able to travel to a city, then this is an art form that you really can't experience. You can listen to it, but Opera needs to be watched like it is this sort of very complicated art form that involves staging and music and acting and the physical experience of feeling the sound waves interact with your body like that is what is so important about seeing it in person and so many people can't do that. 
I have driven down to uh, New York to see matinees at the Met and spent more on gas and parking than I did on my ticket. Yeah, like (laughs) absolutely. I mean, it's like the very first opera that I saw live uh, was a piece called The Blue Woman, which was on at the Royal Opera House. Um, And as soon as I walked into the Royal Opera House, I was given a leaflet advertising a new production of uh, Wagner of the Ring Cycle, where, Mm -hmm. where the tickets were like high three figures. And, you yeah. know, I queued up at the bar to get a drink before the show and the person in front of me was complaining about the limited selection of champagne that was available. <laughs> it's like uh, for all of its for all of its kind of like interest in, you know, as you put it in, in, in the kind of ordinary person, the ordinary person often doesn't get a look in uh, opera. There is a the Royal Opera House is probably a really good example because it has its own very strict political economy where it's mm-hmm. like certain productions will get revivals mostly because it costs so much money to put on an opera on the main stage of the Royal Opera House Yes, that everything just goes into storage. And then you will try and get as many of the original cast back as you can, who can still sing the same parts to do it again, because you can't, you know, you can't redesign sets. You can't make costumes again. You can't, uh, you know, all of these things cost so much money the opera is almost by its nature throws up so many of these barriers to get Mm -hmm. people interested in it in the first place. Right. Like at the beginning of uh, the pandemic, uh, the Metropolitan Opera. So um, they often will live stream their matinee performances on the weekends and will show them in movie theaters. You can go um, your your local movie theater probably plays them. They're like under fathom events. Um, and but they record all those and you can buy them on, you know, on whatever platform you prefer. And at the beginning of the pandemic, they were doing like free ones on their streaming platform every single day. They do like a different one. I, I don't know if it was per day or per week. Um, and then Peter Gelb, who's like what the, you know, the head of the Met was like, oh, we need your money. Please, please donate to us. We can't do it without you. Ignoring that, like there's billionaires <laughs> on the board of the Met and then they like weren't paying they were like laying off and like the the pit musicians right like the pit musicians like couldn't afford to like live and yet these like billionaires are begging for your money um like it was disgusting Mm -hmm. (laughs) like Mm -hmm. I I saw um Ben Miller of the the bad gays podcast is a fellow opera queen and was was commenting on the sort of labor issues of opera at the beginning of the pandemic with this sort of like false begging for money. Yeah, absolutely. There is this there is this kind of like political economy at work that like uh, there are ways around it, but like it doesn't surprise me that so many people just see opera as kind of like a closed book to them. Which is a shame because like, you know, opera, like in the, and this was something I was maybe going to do as like my question at the end, but I think it's relevant to talk about now, the stereotype of opera that people have in their head, like these like sort of media stereotypes that get passed down, you know, fat lady singing, you know, the Valkyrie doing, you know, singing and whatnot and how highfalutin opera is and everything. These like media stereotypes that are like keep being um, reinforced over and over and over it's very like performative in that way um 
make people even disinterested before they even get a chance, if they get a chance to uh, actually be exposed to it. They're only exposed to uh, these stereotypes um, that are very classist and misogynistic, like the fat lady singing, like <laughs> like it. that's awful in and of itself as to how that scene is boring and negative. It's like, no, I want to see the fat lady singing. <laughs> like, that sounds awesome. Well, uh, let's 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 kind of like dig into this then. Let's talk about you know uh, the Minotaur. We have music by Harrison Birtwistle, uh, lyrics the libretto or the little book, which is where all your words go, uh, by the English poet <laughs> David Harsnett. It's directed by Stephen Langridge. It goes up at the Royal Opera House in two thousand eight. Those are the kind of facts. Um, where do we want to start with the kind of formal qualities of this? work well could i ask both of you a question yes what were your physical reactions when you were watching it like in your body how did you feel when you were watching this opera i think for me the the biggest physical reaction i had with this and this is something that i think is a byproduct of literally doing this show um but when we finally get to the the minotaur so when we were trying to figure out which opera to do for this episode um, because there's more than just three operas out there. Fun fact. Uh, so <laughs> Minotaur. But then you sent me a clip of the titular Minotaur just just wailing, just wailing. It's this guy with this giant bull mask on. Just just massive, just incredibly well done. Um, and when he first shows up, when our Minotaur first shows up, I, I just kept thinking about like his experience as an actor and a singer. Right, because so the 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 Minotaur mask is lit from the inside, and it's slightly transparent, so you can see his face and his facial expressions. And I just kept thinking about his embodied experience as a performer, right? Like like wearing this giant bull mask that must have been stuffy and uncomfortable, and he also has to sing and act while wielding this thing. And I, and now he's got these lights shining in his face, so that the audience can read him and see him. And just the kind of like, just just that feeling, right? Of just wearing that mask, the claustrophobia, the tightness. It works so well with the labyrinth and his character. So that's like, I think that was the biggest physical reaction I had while watching this. Um, yeah, as I said before we started recording, I don't know, I don't know if I was sort of wild about this um, in lots of ways. Dramatically, dramatically, I think it's quite baggy in places, which is f- not really a problem, but it we'll get has. To that. Co- it has kind of like pacing implications and it's like my honestly the thing that popped into my head as you asked the question was there's a damn near a jump scare about an hour in uh which is where the the legend that is john tomlinson the bass who plays the minotaur appears on stage for the first time and you get the beautiful kind of circular set design and the masked kind of mob of the chorus and it's like it's Honestly, the, the closest kind of somatic response that I had was like a jump scare in a horror movie. And it isn't that cool. Like the first the first sort of like 45, 50 minutes uh, did not sort of do huge amounts for me. But that first introduction of the Minotaur is like a hammer blow hits you. Yes, I, I completely agree. Like I, the, the Minotaur and, and the goth death birds 
Yes, are, goth birds <laughs> are so. I, I forget the name of the specific uh, mythological creature that they represent, like a carrot. The the carrot, the carrot, yeah. yeah. Um, but like, oh my god, I loved them, and like, the like another another like somatic response to this is when when the carrot are like, you know, they're singing and they also have like a little dance, and one of their arms is done up as like a slightly you know skeletal, slightly featherless wing. And like there's a swooshing motion that they do, and it has like this great like instrumental quality to it. How it like ties in with everything going on is just phenomenal. Yeah, I was gonna say the 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 goth birds when they showed up because like um, before I watch an opera, I tend to read the synopsis, uh, and that's not uncommon. Um, like mm. your little program, if you go see it, will often just be like, and this is what happens during this act. Um, <laughs> because even if you speak the language, you don't understand a word people are saying oh, <laughs> in an opera. Because like to me, it's like the, that's not the point. The music is the the point. And, you know, how do you convey what you're trying to say? And then they give you little subtitles and it's fine. Um, <laughs> like this is this opera is in English. And I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. Um, <laughs> but like so I knew that you know the the carries like the the birds like the death birds that come in and they eat the souls of people who die in battle or from violence and whatnot so i knew that was like a thing that was going to happen and then they show up <laughs> right and are and are like ah! and like actually scream and moan and not just like because they're the they're the only actual true sopranos mm-hmm. uh in the in the piece um ariadne is a mezzo um, and so they're the the highest singers in it. But then the main one will just like moan and groan and do like Martha Graham like contractions and like slam her wing arm up against like the wall of the pit. Yes. And I just like as someone who has done dance and done modern dance and I love Martha Graham, honey, like the sort of like contraction of your spine and whatnot. And that just like moaning and screaming. And it's like, I wish I could do that all the time. <laughs> so it was this sort of like very empathetic, like I feel felt physically like i was doing that i had this connection and also was just like fucking excited about the goth birds i was not expecting them to rule that much i mean uh, opera much like horror wants to do things to your body it doesn't want to it will whether you like it or not (laughs) so this is a formalism point that john brought up that i think it would be worth to kind of like wrestle with for a bit here um, and, and maybe the two of you who have more formal opera experience could have fun with this as well. But like, because as, as is demonstrated, my opera experience is an Andrea Bocelli recital, Manos the Rock Opera of Fate, and an experimental, slightly erotic Lovecraft mythos opera. Uh, um, send that to me, please. <laughs> so, so nothing, n- nothing, nothing you said very one of my traditional. Words. <laughs> <laughs> I know those are like all my favorite words in a string. Um, <laughs> but like the the first about forty minutes of this opera for me was very like. It, it watching this from the perspective of a film critic, I was like, okay, we could have done a lot of cuts here. Theseus just needs to get the fuck in that hole, and we can get. Is it called the Minotaur? Let's let's chop chop here. Let's get some Minotaur on stage. So how do we how do we feel about the kind of like almost labyrinthian lead up to the reveal of the Minotaur, Minotaur? Jay, what do you think? Um. So, I immediately was like thrown off kilter at the beginning when I because they do like a little intro mm-hmm. to each act. And as soon as they said the Minotaur, I was like, wait, what? 
John, is that like how they actually pronounce it in England? Do they do they do that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So in the United States, it's the Minotaur. <laughs> and um, I just wasn't used to hearing it that way. And so immediately it was like this mythological creature that I thought I knew. Um, mm-hmm. Immediately I didn't anymore just from a linguistic shift that I wasn't used to. And so the sort of like build up to it, it felt slow but natural just because it was like oh i don't even know what this creature is anymore Mm -hmm. because i just i felt just so confused right right off the bat um if that makes sense Mm. um i also am not um i'm i'm not a a greek myth queer (laughs) like (laughs) like i know so many queers like get into greek mythology in high school um because like you know, there's so much sodomy and like Sappho <laughs> and, and whatnot, like, and there's like, you know, all the, all the weird shit. Um, but I just wasn't one of those. Um, and so I don't really know a lot of these myths and whatnot. And so it was just like a story, like I kind of knew it's like, oh yeah. And the labyrinth and they, she had the string and the minotaur and it was, you know, whatever. Like I kind of knew the basics. Um, so it was interesting to just like see the story happen and, you know, it's like in Jaws, you don't see the shark until the end. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like that sort of like buildup of like you don't see the thing. Um, it That from horror is something I'm I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't bug me so much, but I agree that there were some pacing issues. Um, and I think the fact that there weren't wasn't really a distinction between so less an aria and recitative. So mm-hmm. in like traditional opera recitative is how the plot happens it's when you're sing talking like this <laughs> and then an aria no plot happens in an aria the aria is where the emotion explodes yeah yeah, yeah. and there wasn't really a distinction between aria and recitative here it was a, most of it it's just people singing what's happening <laughs> <laughs> and every once in a while something interesting would happen so it, it i didn't get those like highs and lows like i'm used to mm-hmm. and so it was a weird time thing um but i didn't necessarily mind it as much as maybe you did ash what about yeah, you john I, th- I think that's an entirely reasonable point um I think in terms of the dramatic structure of the story, uh, there's there's some room for edits here. We can tighten this up, right? Because so much of like, uh, again, I'm thinking of the first the first revelation of the the Minotaur, the first scene with between the Minotaur and the Innocent in Act One, like mm-hmm. incredible, in, in like just an incredible moment where everything comes to a head, and there's this this kind of like moment of this spectacle of kind of public horror which is so engaging. And I think Burt Whistle's score is is like this kind of relentlessly, um, almost obsessively and kind of like ritualistically restaging this kind of same violence and atonality over and over again in some really interesting ways. Um, but like, I feel like so much of it just kind of devolves into, ah, it's, it's two people doing the classic we're talk singing at each other bit. <laughs> you know <laughs> right but i would also say so my point earlier about how like opera is and i'm i'm assuming because I, I have a little highlighted bit for the discourse zone so we will talk about this more in depth later but how like you know opera is how we let our emotions out that's when the extremes happen and i feel like with the minotaur he has such a hard time like he doesn't get to speak until he's dreaming 
he's just like mm-hmm. <laughs> like wailing moaning uh with uh like post verbal mm-hmm. um for a lot of it and i feel like if we had that all the time it would be like too much but it's also sort of showing how constrained he is and how we are like he doesn't get to let that out and we don't get to let that out until these moments of violence until these moments of dreaming um and otherwise we're sort of restrained into this boring talk singing (laughs) um and so it kind of mimics just why opera is so important to me and it it is how we get to let that out and it shows how it's also constrained so if i can offer a sort of cinematic analogy here which might be a little bit of a hot take um harrison burtwistle famously says that opera is a very unnatural form which i love which uh which is entirely correct i think in my opinion yes um and is places opera as antithetical to a sort of naturalism as style so Mm -hmm. if if we are to give opera a cinematic analog then surely the closest thing that cinema has is the work of Nicolas cage yes (laughs) (laughs) and we know how i feel about our our boy our boy nick cage he and i share a birthday so i feel a very close connection to him and like Nick Cage is is quite arguably the finest screen actor of his generation, but is entirely antithetical to cinematic naturalism. Right. Like, um, you know, in the Pay the Ghost episode, we talk about his like mm. hyper acting and how it's like I don't know, German expressionist kabuki. And yeah. there is a excellent movie Sir Nicholas Cage is in called Moonstruck, mm-hmm. where he is a huge opera fan and I feel a deep connection <laughs> to him in that um, and shares in it too. Um, and it's just like Puccini the entire time. And there's this great scene where he just explodes and does like, literally he says that it's based off of the villain in Metropolis and how he does his hand motions. Like he explodes so operatically. I lost my hand. I lost my bride. Like it's so good. And like, it's so unnatural. And that is exactly what opera is. Yeah, I, I look forward to the slew of angry letters that we will get from both Nicolas Cage fans and opera heads uh, when we have placed <laughs> them in an anal- uh, in, a, in a kind of analogous r- relationship. But And all those people are wrong, so. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's not, none of this is natural. It is, uh, and you know, perhaps this is a way of getting past our own kind of feelings about the pacing issues, which is like, it is stilted and awkward. Uh, but it kind of has to be in order to make those moments of high cathexis, those moments of like genuine horror, those moments of kind of like full blown unabashed melodrama actually work. Right. Absolutely. Where it's like, it's almost a relief when the violent outs- outburst happens where it's not just like, Oh, big emotional horror moment. It's a relief when it finally happens. Mm when you're so anxious and worried about something and then you feel kind of better once it actually does happen because well it's happened now yes i don't have to worry about it happening now so we've we've made it a good way through the labyrinth of operatic formalism how about uh going into a sub labyrinth with a double minotaur of discourse Ooh. sub labyrinth is it a dom minotaur honey <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, yeah, the- the- I might the- be horny Theseus for, for is a bottom, that's, that's a fact. 
I, I might be horny for minotaurs, you know, don't judge me. Don't kink shame me, people. <laughs> I believe the entire existence of the minotaur is based on people being horny for monsters. So you are absolutely fine. <laughs> You're an excellent, exactly. excellent company. <clears throat> so where where should we start with our labyrinthian formalism? Oh, my God. Discourse. Discourse is where we're at. I'd lost the red string. Oh, no. <laughs> Well, well, maybe we can start there. What does it What does it mean to be in a labyrinth? What does it mean to be lost? Well, um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ash. Oh, I was just gonna say what I what I will say is that, dear listeners, if you are feeling lost in the labyrinth of life, if you wish that you had a red string right now that could lead you to the exit and away from the scary minotaur of your day to day existence. Go to patreon.com slash horrorvanguard <laughs> or www.horrorvanguard.com um, oh, where uh, you can get early access to episodes and there may be some red string at some point. No promises. They did it. They did it. Um, <laughs> an excellent, an excellent Patreon plug. Um, Slam dunk. Jay, Jay, what do you think? What do you think about the symbolism of the labyrinth as a kind of like emotional aesthetic and and, and kind of like musical motif here? Sure. Um, so I think it'd be interesting to think about labyrinths in various contexts, like cultural contexts. Um, so one reading of a labyrinth is that it is like not a walled space, but more a circular path that you follow to the inside as meditative, where it's mm-hmm. like you're like trying to like find the self at the center or like, you know, meditate or think on something where it's a meditative act to walk a labyrinth. But then you have, you know, what this we have here where there's like the walls and it's about being trapped and being lost, like like the hedge mate uh, in the in the shining. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it is about getting lost and getting confused. But those are the same thing, aren't they? Like walking meditatively to find a quote self and getting Buddhist, there is no self like at the center and also being walled and trapped and confused and lost. I think those are the same thing. So to be in a labyrinth is to both be lost and to be in a constant state of finding yourself. Like you are lost to others, but you are finding yourself. I I think I think that is an incredibly important approach because for me, one of the definitional qualities of a labyrinth is that it is. It's it's not just a space, but it's a function, right? The the labyrinth isn't. Uh, simply a building right it's not like four walls and a roof you have a labyrinth but the labyrinth is designed to make something inaccessible to to a group of people whether you're hiding a thing away from someone or you're you're trying to prevent something from finding you in the case of the shining right like the labyrinth has this function of making parts of a whole distant from itself well i actually think this is an important point to pick up on and to argue for the political valence of the labyrinth right as ariadne's mm-hmm. very ariadne's openings uh kind of like phrases uh at the very beginning of act one talk about this is the labyrinth is a product of a debt that can never be repaid it's a kind of pol- the labyrinth is a political problem you lose you lose yourself right you lose your agency and subjectivity when you are you become the innocent that's put into the labyrinth Right, you were no longer a person. Uh, this is the whole the whole conflict between the whole early conflict between her and Theseus. Right, Theseus goes, "No, I'm I'm going to do this. I've chosen to." Uh, and Ariadne says, "Like, actually, the choice is not yours. You don't get to choose." Right, that's the entire point. You've been placed into this 
the formalization of biopolitical power right it's it's deeply it's deeply Foucauldian. it's there's like huge amounts of kind of agamben happening in this in like what happens to you in the labyrinth is that you become uh something that is both less and more than a person oh absolutely like in uh i forget if it's the first or second like scene of the innocents uh being sacrificed is so there is a traditional uh greek choir wearing masks uh in the scenes with like the minotaur like killing and um raping uh the innocents which i love a good greek choir with a mask like loved it and they're like you know they're the ones like sort of chanting weird greek shit the entire time and they at one point uh sing like uh hoi poloi which means the many which can be translated to mean the proletariat. <laughs> yeah, <yes. laughs> like literally, like it is not, it is not King Minos. It is not these high mythological feature uh, people. It is the regular people who have no names except for Theseus, who is also the son of the sea god, we learn. Um, like it is these people who are reduced to sex and death as a form of capital. Like that is what they are d- then reduced to. They are there to be raped and then they are there to be killed um and that is it and that is like the capital offering that is like that is then the debt they're reduced down to the the to the two things every like living creature on this planet is related to somehow these base like the only thing that unites us all is sex and death in some form or fashion yeah and that's kind of what they are then reduced a bare, to. it's a, a literal libidinal economy yeah a bare life you know, to, yeah. to kind of put it as a gambin would in writings on the camp, you know, like that's th- like just, just bios, right? Just this, just, just this idea of like extinguishment. That's what it, that's all you become. You become those kind of like close relations to those core functions and that's it. Exactly. Yes. And, like, with the Minotaur, like, he is sort of set up as, like, the monster and the thing that does this to you. But he is also the Hoi Polloi. Like, he is exploited. He is part of this. He's not the person. He's not the actual person doing this to these people. King Minos is. Yes. And, and like, John Tomlinson just does some incredible work. Like, oh, my. Good grief. And, like, you totally get why so much of this was written around his voice. Um, he's I, so rough. It's amazing. Like all of the all of the kind of pre-verbal vocalizations and the the honestly, I think the the genuinely brilliant decision to allow the 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 minotaur to speak in dreams is uh. Can we talk about that? Can we talk about the 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 the, the dream space is the space in which you acquire acquire language? Like, wh- what do you both think about that? Can can, well, can I frame that through like what is I think the central line of this opera? If mm. if I were if I had to pick one, I dreamt myself into the labyrinth. Yes, is a line that Theseus is it Theseus or Ariadne that says that one? Mm. Probably they both do. I don't know. Um, but it's not just like oh, I dreamt I was in the labyrinth or whatever. I dreamt myself into the labyrinth where the labyrinth becomes a a space where like you become yourself there you find yourself there 
and it's only in dreams that you can <laughs> i keep like wanting to quote blue velvet <laughs> i'm so sorry like in <laughs> dreams i walk with like every single time um uh can't tell i'm a david lynch fan from the everything else about me um but like you dream yourself into it like that is the only place where you actually have a self like mm -hmm. one thing I put in the notes is like, you know, he like wails and grunts, which I think I actually prefer to a lot of the singing. Yeah. Honestly, is like just the Minotaur just wailing and grunting like that rules. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want that. I love it. Um, but then it's like when he actually gets to like sing. Right. And he's a bass. Right. And oh, what a lovely bass voice he has uh, normally reserved uh, for villains or older men. Uh, if we're going to like typecast like voice types and roles um opera singing if we're to take this literally that form of operatic singing is the only way that he's allowed to like let this self out where he's allowed to express the human side of him but also the beast side of him as well that is the only time those two are united is when he is dreaming when he's allowed to sing in the labyrinth Ash, what do you that think? Was... What do you think? Well, I, I just think this is like the, the fact that he can only the Minotaur can only speak while dreaming. I, I think is because what what is the thing that the choir just keeps demanding of the Minotaur? They keep demanding that he learn to speak. You know, like to say they, his they, name. Yeah, yeah. They keep they keep stereo speak is is just what they keep chanting over and over and over again, and he can't. And then in his dreams, this kind of returns to him. And there's something about that that it, it has such a good political reading, right? Like, like the, you know, like the body of the proletariat, the, the working class is made up of just just so many individual workers, right? Just so many people who earn a wage. And we only come together by learning that very speak, that very speech. I mean, I think there are so many... As a, as a metaphor, there's huge valence here. There's huge, like, but I think the one that's most important is what does it mean to not necessarily be aware of your own interstitial nature? Uh, or mm -hmm. to come, or oh, to yeah. come, or to come into the awareness of your own interstitiality, of your own, the fact that you are, uh, this, this hybridized thing that so many people respond to with, like, um, deep, deep loathing and rage and you contain all of these uh literally all of these desires which literally ca cannot be articulated unless you dream of them um uh jay as you put in your your notes huge trans feelings baby um <laughs> and i i don't know i i don't know if you would maybe kind of like to talk a little bit about that side of things uh sure so um I've, I've said a lot that like opera is very physical and that like physical responses are sort of what I like to focus on as someone who's not like a professional opera person. It's like vibes based, uh, but vibes are physical, right? Um, like at least like that's how I resonate with it. And this opera, more than a lot of others that I've seen, is so focused on the body, right? Like the Minotaur, it's the problem with him is that he is a quote half and half his body is mm -hmm. wrong it's not necessarily that like um uh his mother um pretended to be a bull and then had sex with 
a, a white bull from the sea. Um, it is that he comes out looking the way that he does. Yeah. It's a purely physical thing. And so for there to be this discrepancy between the body and then how you feel inside the body, how others interpret your body, and then how you yourself interpret your body and how you exist within that body. So there's both this like half and half, he's half man, half bull. But then there's the like how people perceive versus how you feel. And like, I I would also be curious to see how intersex people mm. uh, respond mm. to this. I myself am not, so I'm not going to, to comment on that. Um, but just this feeling of like, you know, I, I am a trans man and, you know, the fact of my body that I grew up, um, you know, being read as a as a girl, as a woman. And that's not something that I like to like deny. I don't think I felt like a quote boy when I was a, a kid. And so it was like this, like I was this and now I'm this. That That's my own trans experience. I'm not trying to speak for anyone else. Like caveat, don't cancel me. <laughs> <laughs> People get very like But it's like, like I also feel like a quote half and half. Like I don't want to kill the woman past of me mm -hmm. right i am a man now but that doesn't mean i have to kill what was there before it's okay to be a half and half like i'm doing medical things to my body uh and that's great and i love it and but there's still this other half of me that i don't want to kill i want it to exist alongside me because that's you know part of my history part of who i am and how i feel about that versus oh i have to kill the other part of me, like I have to kill one part of me for society to accept and read me for how I want to be read. Yeah. Right. And so mm, I totally. feel like that is a, a common trans experience is this sort of like, how do you feel about that other part of yourself? Yeah. I, I think I'm, I, you know, I really appreciate you like bringing this up because I think it's one of those things that, you know, it's one of those moments where you you kind of go, oh, there's a cultural form here which is designed to be exclusionary. But actually, if you kind of find a way in, you go, oh, hang on, there's so there's so much here, which, uh, you know, we can we can steal, we can take away, and actually find new ways of kind of articulating those those almost inchoate deeply embodied experiences that maybe have no other way of finding articulation right right like another thing i really connected to and i've been thinking a lot about recently and to bring valentine's day into this like <laughs> is, is like part of um what the minotaur when he is able to sing about is um is love and but mm -hmm. also like when the innocents come in how he fouls their bodies right and how he calls a curse on love and love's dark ways and how this random narrator voice who does not sing he's he speaks says like love is lost to you um and this feeling that one is monstrous and therefore one's love is monstrous and is always harmful to others i think is a very relatable queer experience um mm -hmm. And it's like, even if you embrace that, <laughs> um, just this feeling of like connecting to like, is the very way that I love monstrous? And is that a good, fun, monstrous way? Or like, 
when other people get to the center of my labyrinth and find the minotaur in there, the monster in there, are they going to want to kill it? Is it going to hurt them? Or is it just a, a part of how we love and connect to one another? This queer love, this queer desire, this queer lust, right? I mean, uh, monsters Hell are yeah. both, both both warnings. Like, it, uh, you know, the thing I quote all the time is like the the Latin root of the word monster is, uh, if you translate it literally, both a warning and a sign. I love it so much. Right? It's like a, it's like it's it's the monster is the limit. It's a limit experience, uh, but like the limit is also the point at which you become something else. Right? It's the point at which. Uh, you know the eye becomes you uh right like that point where those two where the edge of the, the boundary of something meets is the point is the point potentially of of pain or potentially of loss but also the 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 undeniable potential of something kind of new and beautiful and something that's yet to have existed before right and like to connect this to maybe a formalist element of like this is still opera and like why this hits so hard in opera is that like imagine you're in the theater watching this like imagine you're surrounded by other people watching this imagine that you like are in the same room as you know the minotaur imagine that like the sound ricocheting off everything is like connecting with you like there have been times where i've been at the opera and i've stopped breathing because it just it hit me i felt it and up in the cheap seats and it's still just like that physical experience like imagine like all of this like you know on stage all this like grief and shame and like longing and disgust and it's not just that you're watching it on a screen you're there in there with that person and like literally your bodies are like connected like atomically through sound waves it just like it enhances it so much Ooh, I love that. Mm -hmm. All right, we are uh, approaching an hour, and I want to uh, you know, open open up the stage to anyone for closing <laughs> operatic remarks. I'll go. My, I'll my go first. Bit. Yeah, sure. <laughs> So one thing, one thing, and uh, this, this I think for me ties together a lot of the weird threads that we've been weaving, our, our little twines through this labyrinth of discourse, and like because so much about this is about being and knowing and monstrosity and being othered and denying parts of the self to the self but you know the the first 40 minutes of this is a bunch of characters whining while standing on a sandbar and <laughs> and dear listeners uh, this is an important political point i'll be making here i i i mean to lower opera to the lowest of the low when it comes to the casts of cinema who who else is famous for their character being defined by whining about their relationship to sand and that's anakin skywalker uh sand it, it i'm gets going every, to actually kill operas, you <laughs> it gets in your it gets in your acoustically transparent minotaur mask it, it's just the worst um but I, I think what i find to be interesting is this also opens up something really hopeful about the minotaur and and i think about this kind of character in general right because the minotaur isn't static you know like the, the minotaur isn't you know like necessarily a force for evil and corruption and this kind of bestial rage and lust the, the Minotaur is a process. It's Minotauring, right? Like the Minotaur was made to be this way by being banished to this labyrinth, by being denied 
a, a place in the world for a perceived monstrosity, right? Like Anakin Skywalker. Also, Darth Vader is the process of Darth Vader ring. It's never static. It's never a total commitment to something, right? Like, and in, and in dreams and in death, the Minotaur finds his voice again. And, and even though he's in great pain, there's something that's hopeful about him being able to speak really for the first time. And, and likewise, in death, Darth Vader is able to take his mask off for the first time and to cease being a monster and again return to being a man, a father, someone with compassion. And in death, we see him fully returned to himself, you know, again, alive for the first time in, in this dreaming state of non-existence. Well, and there's it something... Oh, go, go on, go on. It, 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 it isn't as a monster that Theseus kills him, right? You know, right yep. at the end, in the I think either the last scene or the, just the second to last scene, he acquires the power of speech. Right when they yes. when they have their when they have their fight, mm-hmm. if if to be a subject, if we're going to be like Lacanian or psychoanalytic about it, if to be a subject is to enter into the symbolic realm, into the realm of language, right? He is no longer like the monster is that which is outside of the symbolic realm. Um, outside of the realm of language right to, to speak is to be identifiable as a subject right mm-hmm. you monsters are feared but he's, he's not killed because of his monstrosity the minotaur is killed because they're identifiable as a subject right like really the the kind of that final those final two scenes really do collapse that distinction the, any kind of easy dividing line between the the warning and the sign and the kind of like quote unquote normal just it gets erased because it's like uh you don't become a you know you know you know the monster's not killed and the human is restored like there's humanity already inchoately present and it's that which is killed like we don't need to look for monsters we're perfectly capable of being horribly viciously violent to each other anyway oh totally totally and i think i think it's also worth highlighting that like like what what are we talking about when we talk about death whether it's the minotaur or darth vader you know like these characters don't die they're fictional then they never lived to begin with right this is this is a much more complicated death than you and i could suffer you know we're we're cursed to a much more dull approach to the dying as compared to what fictional characters attain and it's it's so much more transformative right something is handed back to us as the viewer of these media when we watch these deaths on screen, it's much more participatory. You know, we, we get to experience part of that, that cycle, that transformation when we watch the Minotaur go through his final moments, which are really jarring. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I guess my like sort of final thoughts would be like what this opera, um, says about violence. Um, Mm -hmm. because like, it's not the Minotaur that is violent. It is King Minos. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. Who, yes. Who who is violent and like when the goth birds <laughs> I can't call them anything else. When the goth birds come out, like I mean they they look like they went to Hot Topic yeah. beforehand. They're like mall goth birds. <laughs> um and they come out and like they're like eating the souls and they're like ah, and they're like screaming and wailing and there's blood everywhere and they're eating hearts and whatnot and they said they say that um death summons us violence summons us murder in the bedroom murder in the mm-hmm. nursery blood you know whatever and they're shown to be so violent right but they're not that's just how they are they're just eating 
Like they are a mm-hmm. neutral thing and they reveal our own violence. They reveal the violence of King Minos. They're just there doing their thing. They're carrion birds. Yeah. That's that's what they are. And so to think about like how this opera reframes violence, like it is violent that the Minotaur is sort of like cooped up and restrained and repressed to where he can only express himself in in dreams and to think about like to sort of tie this into the classist element of opera like because it has become so inaccessible or hard to access for those outside of cities for those with um without money um like how do you get the time to travel to go see an opera right um Mm -hmm. they are in fact like inhibiting our own ability to connect to our emotions in fact they're stealing that from us they can go watch it on stage all they want but we can't and we're here like sanitized and pumped full of like mood stabilizers and like we are told to be so calmed down and whatnot they're stealing our emotional range from us that is violence right yeah hell yeah, yeah yeah so i think that that is a fantastic sentiment a fantastic line a fantastic read to end this episode on some something appropriately passionate for valentine's day is is a perfect closing point for our episode on harrison burt whistles the minotaur uh before we before we depart before we try try to find our way through our own romantic minotaurs romantic romantic labyrinths because honey i'm gonna go find him yeah yeah, we're we're all looking for a minotaur to be romantic with if i'm being honest that is really the thing isn't it um but jay if you could let us know where to find you online your patreon your podcasts all your good stuff yes so again uh my name is jay colbert and on twitter i am at underscore wild at heart it's bit spelt like oscar wilde um and my Patreon is, you know, patreon.com slash wild at heart. Again, like Oscar Wilde and uh, all my writing on there will also be available publicly. But if you become a patron, mm. you get it, you know, early access. Um, but also at the end of every month, uh, I will do a little watch party uh, of an opera so that people can watch them and talk about them with each other um, so that, you know, people aren't just like watching it on YouTube and going like, I don't know what the hell this is. Yeah. You know, having that also communal element to it. Um, so, and also you get zines. So I'm making opera zines for it too. Um, Hand stitched, by the way. Ooh. And yeah, I know how to do book binding. I'm a librarian. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of librarians, I am one of the three, uh, the triumvirate <laughs> of co-hosts of uh, Library Punk, a leftist library worker podcast. You can find us we, you know, wherever fine podcasts are distributed and on Twitter at Library Punk. And you can email us at um, librarypunkpod, I think it is. Uh, I'll put it in the notes uh, at gmail.com. And maybe we'll read what you say. I don't know. We're a very chill <laughs> podcast with no rules. So <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you for joining us today. And thank you, dear listeners, for getting operatic with us, for getting for enjoying an opera. I don't know. Well, have fun. Have happy <laughs> what, a, what a way fall, out. Falling apart rapidly. Here. <laughs> Boom. Oh, goodbye, everyone. We'll see you in the cheap seats. There we go. And that's where the sound is best. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week.
Stay spooky.